Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. My name is Steve Phillips, and 870 days ago, I got an email from Mark Favreau of The New Press, the publisher who published my first book, Brown is the New White, in 2016. And Mark asked, would you be interested in talking about your next book? I wrote Brown is the New White because everyone was drawing the wrong conclusions from Obama's elections, and I wanted to try to explain how and why Obama had won and what the implications were for U.S. politics going forward as we approached the post-Obama era. Too many people in positions of power thought Obama won solely because of his personal talents and gifts and not because of the demographic revolution that was transforming the composition of the country. I actually went back and did the numbers. Obama would not have been elected in the 1980s had he run against like Reagan because there weren't enough people of color in the country. If you take the 80% of people of color and 40% of whites. And so when I was asked if I wanted to write a second book, I thought about what Donald Trump had unleashed in this country. And I suggested to Mark that I try to explain the current period we are in by using the Civil War as a metaphor. Then nine months later, people carrying the Confederate flag and wearing T-shirts saying MAGA Civil War January 6, 2021, stormed the U.S. Capitol, tried to hunt down the country's elected officials, and sought to overthrow the democratically elected government of this country. And so the concept of a civil war wasn't just metaphorical anymore. And sadly, the thesis of the book, that the Confederates have never stopped fighting the civil war, becomes increasingly relevant with each passing day. We are still fundamentally engaged in an existential battle over the identity of the United States of America. Is this primarily a country for straight white Christian men, or is this a multiracial, multicultural democracy? And that's what animates nearly all of the fights in the country right now. Whose country is this? Who belongs here? Who does not belong here? Who's a real American and who is not? It's a choice, as the historian Taylor Branch put it, and as I use his quote to the title of my intro, between whiteness and democracy. The good news, and I and it's what I devote the whole second half of the book to, is that in very important ways, the champions of multiracial democracy are winning, and winning in places that were formerly bastions of the Confederacy, Georgia, Arizona, Harris County, Texas, Virginia, San Diego. And so I spent the past two years of my life writing this book because I thought that it was the greatest contribution I could make to social and political change in this moment. I wanted to help clarify the nature of the fight we are facing and lift up the lessons learned about how we win. The book is now done, and it will be published on October 18th. And over the next four podcasts, we're going to explore these underlying themes as we seek to make sense of this moment and chart the way forward. And so today's podcast kicks off that series of conversations. We are honored to be joined by a very distinguished historian whom I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with for a number of decades now. I was very humbled that she agreed to provide the main blurb for uh, my new book. So I'm very much looking forward to this show and for this conversation. I'm joined, as always, by a person who's my co-host, book writing co-pilot and editor, and like our guest, a daughter of Chinese immigrants who grew up in the New York, New Jersey region. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hi, Steve. I'm, I'm doing great overall. And it's just, um, it's so moving to hear you recap the history of the Brown is the New White book just giving a little background about that and being reminded of new press coming to you and saying, what would you like to write your second book about? 
So it's just, as I always say to you, it's just been such an incredible journey and the journey continues. That's and how we met on the we, first yes, one. Totally. And I am so looking forward to our conversation with our guest today. Today joining us is May Nye. Maya is a prize-winning historian and writer. She's an Asian-American studies professor and professor of history at Columbia University. Shout out, Columbia. It's my graduate school alma mater. She is also the co-director of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. May is a U.S. legal and political historian focused on the histories of immigration, citizenship, nationalism, and the Chinese diaspora. She's written several books, Steve, including the yes, award-winning. <laughs> People are so prolific. Right, I read. I was reading her the current one, and the fact that she worked on it for ten years. I'm like, yeah, that's that's more than wow. I could pull together. Such you know respect for people who just keep cranking away and putting so much work in these books. She's written several books, including the award-winning Impossible Subjects, Illegal Aliens and the Making of Modern America, and her latest book, The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics, which won the 2022 Bancroft Prize and was a finalist for the 2022 Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Before becoming a historian, she was a labor union organizer and an educator in New York City. Welcome, May. So happy to have you here today. Hi, Charlene. Thank you for that nice introduction. Glad to be here. And hi, Steve. It's great to be on your show. Thanks for coming. Yeah, no, I'm really excited for this conversation. We joke on this show about uh, there could be a drinking game when people drink every time that uh, I mentioned Jesse Jackson on the podcast. Um, <laughs> but you, you and I first met during Jesse's 84 campaign. I remember actually staying at your apartment in Manhattan, which kind of like a, was a center for the movement at that time. And wow. that's actually... Remember that part. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, <laughs> that's a long time ago. Wow. Yes, I was staying there. I mean, there, uh, Nora Cody from Berkeley. We were actually both stayed there another different time. That was like a, a node for the movement back then. And that's actually kind of one of my questions, right? Is that you know, my first question is I'm just interested. I think we don't think we've ever even discussed this. I mean, we met and we were both activists and organizers and have gone on to continue, you know, the work in different arenas. So I am very curious, how did you decide to settle on academia as the path that you were gonna that you were gonna take? Well, I'll give you the short version. <laughs> so I was uh, working for a labor union, uh, District 65 of the UAW in New York uh, in the 80s. And actually out of um, our office uh, of, of the union, um, we did a lot of events for, for uh, Reverend Jackson during his campaigns. And the union had a lot of financial troubles. And I, at that time, you know, I was a college dropout. I hadn't finished college. So I thought, you know, I should go back to school and just get, get that piece of paper. Um, and then I had I went to a non-traditional, you know, program at SUNY uh, for mm-hmm. students. And I had this wonderful mentor and he said, you know, you should go to graduate school. And I hadn't thought about that. I just wanted to get the credential. Um, but I did, you know, it was like somebody puts an idea in the back of your mind and you mm-hmm. think it's ridiculous and then you think about it for a while. So I went back to uh, to school. I went to Columbia for my PhD, and I just loved it. I mm. loved about history. I loved doing research. Um, and by that time, I was working for a nonprofit, uh, the Consortium for Worker Education, writing uh, grant proposals, and it was a good job. But you know, frankly, I just I, it was I just couldn't see doing that. For for, you know, over the long haul. So I did a little teaching and I really liked it. And so I, I pivoted to um, to becoming a professor. 
And uh, I was lucky I got a good job. You know, nowadays it's very hard to get a job in academia. It's part of the general crisis of employment in this country right now. It's all casual part-time labor. Um, the tenure track positions are shriveling up. So I was very fortunate to get a tenure track job and get one in a, in a big university. Right. But I never looked back. Yeah, well, it's been great to watch your work unfold and kind of see the you know the voice and it's fascinating also to see you know, we're you know similar types of issues in the nitty-gritty way but then getting to fight those fights in different sectors and whatnot right right may i in your book impossible subjects you did a deep dive into the country's history and attitudes to the question of immigration again one of the very first laws passed in the country the 1790 naturalization bill said that to be a u.s citizen you had to be a quote free white person this question of citizenship and who gets to be here has just been a central and fiercely debated question to this day, you know, to present time with, for example, obviously when Trump launched his campaign by viewing all that vitriol attacking people of Mexican descent and also calling for a ban on all people who are Muslim. And to this day, we can't, we still can't pass comprehensive immigration reform in this country. But I don't think people realize how carefully thought through these policies have been in terms of restricting, by definition, who gets to be an American. You wrote in your book, Impossible Subjects, that in 1924, Congress passed a law that, quote, constructed a white American race in which persons of European descent shared a common whiteness distinct from those deemed to be not white. An amazing quote, by the way. Can you explain what you meant by that and what Congress did in terms of those 1920s laws in determining immigration citizenship? Well, thanks for that question. I think that's a great place to start. The 1790 Act on who could be a citizen, actually it was who could be a naturalized citizen, right? Because there was a presumption that if you were born in the United States, you were a citizen by birth. At that time, slaves could not be citizens, even though they might've been born in the United States. So it was presumed that those natural born or birthright citizens were white. And so it's not until after the Civil War that citizenship is extended to the former slaves. And that's done, of course, in the 14th Amendment, mm. right, which says that all persons born and naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States and the state in which they reside. So the 14th Amendment was meant to overturn Dred Scott right, which said Black people had no rights that whites had to respect. It overturned uh, or vacated Dred Scott, and it established the principle of birthright citizenship for all persons born in the United States. And it was aimed at giving citizenship to the former slaves. And the 14th Amendment went on to say that all persons, and that's interesting, they said persons, persons, not just citizens, had the right of um, due process of law and equal protection. So Interestingly, after the 14th Amendment was passed, Congress amended the Naturalization Act, right, which had been in place in 1790, right, mm -hmm. white persons. So they entertained striking all racial conditions for citizenship. Mm. They could have just said all persons, you know, all free persons uh, of good character who have lived here for X number of years. But and, and this is interesting because Charles Sumner was the one on the floor of the Senate who says we should just strike all racial bars to citizenship. Mm -hmm. and 
his opponent said, no, 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 no. If you do that, then Chinese and Indians will become citizens. Mm -hmm. So the, the 1870 Naturalization Act granted the privilege of naturalization to all white persons and persons of African nativity and descent. And that was really a, 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 just a gesture because, you know, there were no African immigrants at that time, right? Right. So it didn't really have practical meaning. It was just to make sure that it conformed to the, the freedom won by uh, Black people from the Civil War. And they deliberately left out any mention of any others. So then you have a series of litigations in the late 19th and early 20th century about who's white. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, nobody goes and says, I'm black, right? Because they're not going to do that. Right. There's several Asian cases, there are Middle Eastern cases where people say they have the right to naturalized citizenship because they were, quote, white, unquote. And so you have from the very time of the aftermath of the Civil War and the Reconstruction era, what you have is this persistence of white supremacy, a grudging acceptance of African Americans as mm-hmm. citizens. And I do mean grudging. Yeah, no, they, they, they had a hard time passing those amendments, the 14th Amendment and 13th right. and 15th. And, you know, I mean, the, the slaves had shed their blood in the Civil War. It was really, if the Civil War was going to mean anything, it had to admit Black people to citizenship. But then we saw over the next 30 years how their citizenship was reduced to what we commonly call second-class status, yeah. right? Jim Crow laws, and by a constant and increasingly narrowing of the 14th Amendment itself, Right. So it didn't apply to uh, social rights, social equality, certainly not. It's political equality was very circumscribed. And the 14th Amendment over the course of the late 19th century became mostly an instrument of business. Right. Because once the Supreme Court ruled that a corporation is a legal person. Right. Then it becomes the weapon of freedom of contract, which is the weapon of capital in the late 19th century. So anyway, this is the backdrop to how even after the Civil War, the question of citizenship was still mostly considered to be that the province of whites and only grudgingly something that blacks were entitled to. And that African-American citizenship itself was rendered into a second class kind of thing. Right. Now, if I can add another dimension to this story, is the question of the Chinese, because Chinese were really one of the larger, even though it was a small group, but um, non-white immigrants that came to the United States in the 50s during the gold rush. And that's the subject of my my latest book. So the question is, you know, could Chinese be citizens? Right. Could they be naturalized citizens? Right. The 14th Amendment said, uh, the Naturalization Act says who can be, but it doesn't say who cannot be, not explicitly. So there are cases that are litigated. And there's a very long struggle over Chinese because the whites in the West Coast don't want Chinese to be citizens. In fact, they want them excluded altogether. So you have the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. And it's not until 1898 that the Supreme Court upholds birthright citizenship for Chinese born in America. So that's already 30 years after the 14th Amendment. And what's interesting is the court says, well, the 14th Amendment language is plain. Hmm. 
by all persons born and naturalized are citizens. And if we take it away, if we say it doesn't apply to Chinese, we jeopardize the citizenship of all the children of the Europeans. Last thing I'll say about the Chinese before we get to 1924 is that the Chinese exclusion law passed in 1882, it's not passed that easily, right? There's opposition from different quarters and it's seen in Washington as being a sectional issue, right? Something that just the people on the West Coast are inflamed about. Right. Mm-hmm. But it passes Congress through an alliance between the South and the West. Think about that. Right. And that's the post-Reconstruction South, mm-hmm. right? right? Which that's is the, the, 80s. the right. resurrected white Confederates right. getting back power and then partnering right. up with the West. Right. So you have a partnership of white supremacy in the South and in the West. And it's a solid vote for Chinese exclusion. Now, I mean, it passes by a healthy majority, but the only opposition comes from the Northeast and the, the old Midwest, right? Where you have still uh, some vestiges of anti-slavery politics. And the debate on the floor of the Congress is really interesting. You have people from like Ohio saying things like, are you sure they're like slaves? I mean, wouldn't they just become Americans just like the Germans and the Irish? Mm-hmm. That's interesting, right? Because, you know, nobody will say that uh, from the South or the West and hardly anybody would say that even today, right? Aren't they just like the Irish and the Germans? Right, right, right. So right. this is an issue that is, it's really like you say, or like you quoting Branch, it's whiteness versus democracy. Right. And Frederick Douglass knew this. Frederick Douglass gives this amazing speech in 1869. He says, we should welcome the Chinese. They'll just be like us, the rest of us. We're a composite nation. Mm-hmm. And, and so Douglass knew that the nation was at a crossroads, right? I mean, this is much of what he fought the last decades of his life, was which direction is the country going to go in? Is it going to be uh, a white supremacist society or is it going to be a dem- democratic society? And that's right. the struggle we face today, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, so I do want to jump to the to the 20s piece. One of the things that I was working on in my book that was so fascinating to me, so many levels of this. And so that, and it was all 1924, right? So that you have the 1924 presidential conventions where each convention tried to pass a resolution condemning the Klan, which was on a tear, well, it's been on a tear for, you know, for, you know, almost a century of lynching and killing people. And they did not have the vote. They could not condemn the Klan. Neither political party would condemn the Klan, the 1924 uh, uh, conventions. And so at that same time, right, they were also grappling with the, the, the 1924 laws around immigration and putting in place the system. It was so fascinating. I was reading um, Impossible Subjects. The amount of thought and deliberation in terms of the components of how to set up this system. And so I wonder if you could give some background to that around the, passing that framework for immigration uh, and naturalization. Right. So the, the wrinkle in this whole thing is that at that time, like since the 1890s and through the 20s, certain Europeans were not really considered fully white. Italians, Jews, people from uh, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Slavs, the people that uh, came at the early part of the 20th century who were really the, the muscle, right, that built the industrialization of America, right? There was a lot of nativism against, against them. 
And so the 1924 Act is kind of a product of 20 years of agitation to restrict immigration, which until that time was virtually open. If you're from anywhere, really, except for China, right? We had no quotas. We had no visas. We had no passports. There's no such thing as a green card. The only people who are really excluded categorically are Chinese. And then in 1917, they set up a, what they call um, a barred Asiatic zone, which runs from Afghanistan to Japan. It excludes Japan because Japan was a, a great power, right? And so the 1920s Act is really aimed at restricting European immigration or, or filtering it in such a way that the so-called Nordics would be able to come, but the uh, so-called Mediterranean uh, races would be not excluded, but restricted. And uh, But to Asia, the 1924 law perfected the system of Asiatic exclusion, which had been kind of a patchwork quilt before that. There was Chinese exclusion. There was a barred Asiatic zone. There was no statutory exclusion of Japanese. There was kind of a diplomatic agreement between Japan and the U.S. to limit the number. So the 24 Act perfects an, a comprehensive Asiatic exclusion. And then the third component of the law, which is really fascinating, is that it has no restrictions, no numerical restrictions on the countries of the Western Hemisphere, which at that time they were mainly concerned about Mexico and Canada. Mm-hmm. I but I think even that point, people don't realize that the it was essentially an open border. So open borders. We essentially had that in this country, right? And it was a very intentional situation not that long ago to create the with the current restriction. Even exactly, because before 1924, there were no numerical restrictions on immigration, not at all. If you showed up and you passed some simple health tests, like at Ellis Island, at Ellis Island, Ellis Island only turned back like 2% of the people who showed up out of 25 million people who came. Wow. Wow. Ellis Island before World War I, 2% were turned back, either because they were likely to be a public charge which is another interesting story, right? How they determined that. Um, or if you were um, had a disease or found to be mentally defective. So the country wanted immigrants. At first it wanted immigrants in the 19th century, not immigrants per se, but settlers. They wanted people to come and open up new territories, right? They wanted Europeans to come. And then in the late 19th and early 20th century, they wanted laborers to come who mostly came from Europe but they came from new regions and then there was this backlash against them. So you had a lot of that struggle before the 1924 act was between sectors of the society that wanted labor industries, business, and those who wanted to keep the nation uh, white. And in their minds, white meant Mm Anglo-Saxon. It's it's all of this is it's fascinating and, and maddening and mind boggling this sort of carving out and this, this, you know, if it works for the the dominant group, you know, basically the white supremacy right. uh, institutionalized, then yes, you know, we'll make it easy. But if not, or if it feels threatened, which in the case it did uh, when they realized that they felt threatened by Chinese, the, the prospect of so many Chinese coming over and and essentially, from my understanding of my studies, uh, the groups that were just keeping to themselves and not, you know, the, the perceptions of Chinese not being 
integrating in in society, then they were just like, nope, you're you're cut off. Like we don't want any more of you to come in. It makes me think sometimes over over time, I've periodically thought about what would our country be like today in 2022 if Reconstruction had played out the way it was initially uh-huh. promised. Yes. Um, and what if there were no Chinese exclusion acts? Exactly. What there would our country be like today? Yeah. And um, so I was curious, uh, you know, speaking of this sort of how these decisions were made, I was wondering, uh, what do you know about the political debate at the time, namely around, let's say, uh, Chinese exclusion acts? Like, how does that compare to today? Was there media debate? Were there... Um, what was there, you know, was there any kind of two sides and who was fighting, you know, against exclusion laws and or did the majority of society, which was majority white, just go along and say, yeah, I, I, I agree. We don't want them here. There was some debate in California, which is where the Chinese exclusion movement began. Chinese had become a kind of uh, racial scapegoat. Uh, used in politics starting in the 1850s. So I, I have developed a kind of, I've been thinking about this a lot as I was working on my book. I've developed a kind of theory about nativism because I thought about the Chinese, the movement against the Chinese. And then I thought about the movement against the Europeans, you know, Italians and Jews in the early 20th century. And I thought about the anti-Mexican and to an extent anti-Asian politics in our own time. And what these three moments have in common is this. First of all, it's not just like it's unemployment. I mean, unemployment comes and goes, right? There's booms and busts. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of simple unemployment. I mean, during times of unemployment, some people blame immigrants, but it's, it's not enough, right? What, what happens, it, what the economic situation in all these three periods is that there's a major economic restructuring going on in the country. And it's usually actually a time of expansion, not contraction, right? After the civil war, you have the consolidation of a national market. Around the turn of the 20th century, you have massive industrialization and urbanization. And in the late 20th century, you have what people call globalization or basically the rise of finance, right, and service industries and deindustrialization. So what happens when you have these major economic shifts is you have winners and losers, right? And and some older sectors um, get squeezed out. So in the late 19th century, it's craftsmen, artisans, the guilds, uh, and that goes into the early 20th century, right, where you have mass manufacturing then. And in the late 20th century, right, it's the deindustrialization, it's the heavy industry, the big union jobs, right? And so as new sectors of the economy emerge, right, and they draw from new sources of labor, which is frequently immigrant labor, but not always. Sometimes it's like, you know, um, you know, sectors, uh, poorer sectors of the, of the white working class. But the people who are threatened then uh, have a lot of anxiety, right? Right. And so that, okay, so that's step one. Then step two is that you have pundits and intellectuals who create a theory of of difference, right? Mm -hmm. People who actually have nothing to do with why craft workers are being displaced, right? Or why auto workers are being displaced, right? But they, 
there's a kind of theory that gets um, propounded, right? And at, many times it's a very race, racist theory. And then you have politicians who weaponize those theories to get votes. Right. And that's what happened in the late 19th century with the Chinese. That's what happened in the up to 24. I mean, the this movement for restriction and through the early 20th century was actually, you know, the, the Im- immigration restriction was vetoed four times before it passed in 1924. It was vetoed for 20 years. And the act of 1917 only passed out over, over Wilson's second veto. So there were a lot of people who didn't want restriction and um, because there, there are different kinds of interests at play. But, you know, after World War One, you know, you have a period of reaction right after the war. This, you have the Palmer raids, you know, all Americanism is riding high. And the same thing in, in our time, right? Um, you know, I think the what you point out in your work, Steve, is really important in the sense. I mean, you have this incredible, loud, right, and increasingly violent white supremacist movement, which right. includes, it's not limited to, but it includes anti-immigrant sentiment. And not the only force out there. And it's hard to even say historically if it's that white supremacist vision has always been the majority. It hasn't necessarily always been the majority, but they but they win elections. So I think that this is this is to me the pattern that I see over time. And in um, and so I think the Exclusion Act in 1882 was really this victory of white supremacy that was made possible by the two most racist bastions in the country, the South and the West. You know, when I say the West, I include California historically. Today, we, we don't look at California, but California is very divided right, itself. And if you look at the electoral maps, all the rest of the West is all red states, you know, in those states that have, you know, have fewer residents than like the city of Los Angeles or something, you know, yeah, they don't yeah, yeah, have yeah. the majority of people, yeah. but they yeah. control the, the Congress. Yes, the, the Wyomings of the world. So we are kind of looking forward to bumping up against time, but I did want to just kind of reflect a little bit, get your insights around kind of where we go from here, kind of what are you seeing, right? I mean, you, you and I connected, you know, a minute ago when we were both younger activists and whatnot, but now you work with young people as a, as a professor. And so kind of what are you seeing among students and young people in terms of really understanding these types of issues and their involvement in, in trying to bring about change? Um, I think students today uh, care a lot about the future of the country. Um, I would say eight to 10 years ago, they were less political. They were more pre-professional. You, I still see that, of course. I mean, there's still a lot of kids who want to go to, you know, their econ majors. Econ is still the biggest major. Right. You want to go to Wall Street. But increasingly, students are, are much more worried about their future. They worry about climate more than our generation does. That's their issue as a generation is climate. Increasingly, race is an issue for them. I'm not sure how this generation is responding to abortion. I think it's something that they probably have taken for granted. And I hope that, you know, the Dodds decision will be a wake up call. Um, that their mothers will tell them right. <laughs> how important it is. 
Um, and so I, I think that, um, you know, the, the students I work with in ethnic studies are very sophisticated. They're very smart uh, and savvy about politics. I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, <laughs> but I think that, you know, I think we have a fighting chance. All right. Well, I think on that note is where we'll tee it up in terms of uh, wrapping this up with the fighting chance here going forward. Just better than not having a fighting chance, I guess. Um, so um, thank you so much, May, for making the time. Um, uh, it's really great to reconnect with you. Appreciate your support on this journey. And um, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was nice talking to both of you. Okay. That's all the time we have for today. And it was Fascinating listening to me, particularly talking about how there was this period where they were a battle among white Europeans around who got to be in this country and that they were constructing laws to be able to actually suppress certain, you know, white Europeans. They weren't the right kind of white people or whatnot. And it brings to mind the the title of the book, which is the compilation of all of James Baldwin's nonfiction. And it's called The Price of the Ticket. And it brings together all of Baldwin's nonfiction writing. And he writes an overarching opening essay where he talks about the price of the ticket. And he says that the price of the ticket for becoming an American was to become white. So all of these different European nationalities had subsumed those and embraced this whiteness as the essential component of the American identity. And so I hadn't connected those two pieces, but when May was kind of breaking down some of how this unfolded in terms of the development of immigration policies, it really brought that to mind. All right. So this is the first episode building towards the book publication in October. And we're going to do a series more that are coming going forward, digging into this theme of where we are at in the country. What is the task before us? How do we actually move ahead and how do we understand it? So really Appreciate May taking the time uh, to join with us, uh, Professor May Nye. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram, where we have amazing memes that are produced by Fola Onifade. You can follow us on Instagram at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Bola Onifade, and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith. <laughs>